Hi, welcome to this Physicians Weekly's podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles. I'm your host for this podcast. And today we've got some great interviews as usual. This is Physicians Weekly. Hello to episode 123. Today is the last one of the year of 2023. So it's appropriately named episode 123. Anyway, coincidence. In today's episode, I co-host with Dr. Alex McDonald, who is a board member of Physicians Weekly and a fantastic person with great insights into family practice and sports medicine. So what we did is we sat down and we made a list in no particular order of importance of what we thought were the top 10 medical innovations for 2023. Some of them are already in practice and others are just very recent breakthroughs not really ready for prime time or for very unique and small populations of patients. All in all, it was a great year for medical science and let us know what you think were the biggest innovations for medicine in 2023. Happy to think about that. At Physicians Weekly, we're wishing you all safe and healthy holidays. We'll be back the first week of January in 2024 with an episode dedicated to looking forward at anticipated medical breakthroughs in 2024. Enjoy listening. Hello, everyone. I'm Alex McDonald. I practice family and sports medicine here in Southern California, and I am a frequent contributor to the Physicians Weekly podcast here. I'm excited to be back. I do lots of things. I'm mostly a clinician. I teach some residents and medical students uh, and some fellows, and then I do a lot of health policy work. And so those are kind of my my buckets of interest, and I'll definitely be approaching this top 10 list from that perspective. So I'm excited to be here, and, and thanks for having me back, as always, Dr. Giles. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. McDonald. I always like these conversations with you because I I think we complement each other very well. I'm, I'm an academic-based trialist. I'm interested in the trials and, and the, the new data and how we can apply that to the clinic, but it's often to very specific patients. And what I really appreciate about, about your experience is you really see that the average patient, the, as a family doctor, you see a little bit of everything. Anyway, we decided to compile this top 10 list of breakthroughs, medical breakthroughs from 2023. And this is in no particular order, and it's far from complete. I think those are the, my disclaimers to, to start off with. So our first one, I think we both agreed really quickly, is weight loss medications. Alex, yes. can you tell me a little bit about your experience there? Yeah. So the uh, FDA approval for GLP-1 receptor agonist for uh, weight loss, probably about 20% of all the emails I get are from patients requesting medication-assisted weight loss. And I think it's really important that you know, this is one part of a comprehensive plan when it comes to weight loss. You know, diet and exercise are absolutely fundamental. I mean, as many of you have heard me talk on this podcast before, I'm a lifestyle medicine uh, guru. Diet, sleep, exercise, stress relief, uh, social connection, and avoidance of risky substances is the number one thing to improve your health. Now, obviously, in our the epidemic of obesity in this country is leading to significant rises in hypertension, diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, which are then resulting in severe cardiovascular disease, MI, strokes, you name it. And so I was very hesitant when this kind of first came out, but I think there's definitely a significant role for medication-assisted weight loss within the context of diet and exercise and doing all those things to really maximize health and prevent illness. And so this is really the panacea. I have some kind of 
issues. Why do we supplement medications versus supplementing different, you know, farmers markets and local fruits and vegetables and food deserts? So I have lots of conflicting thoughts about this, and we could probably talk all day on this topic alone. But I well, think it is a really, really essential topic, and I think it is. Yeah. It's all based on this on this one trial, right? The select the phase three select trial, I think, yeah. was the most prominent one that came out earlier this year. And yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of expansion in this thing. And it's just something we're going to have to face more and more and how that fits in to the whole overall picture of patient medication. And, you know, it's not without risk, right? There there were severe uh, adverse events in some patients, and it's really important to keep an eye on what those things are. Of course, you know, there's adverse events with pretty much everything, but this is not for the lighthearted necessarily. So... Correct. Well, and I think also, you know, we obviously have the the clinical trial data, which showed a lot of uh, efficacy. But then when you start expanding that to millions of patients versus, you know, hundreds or thousands, we'll have more real world data in the the coming months. But there's no question this is not going away. And this is something we're going to... No, and it's it's pretty important for primary as well as secondary prevention, right? So I think that that's the goal, right? It's it's a tough one. Okay. Well, do you expect to see anything really immediately in 2024 with this or... No, I mean, I think uh, it'll be interesting to see sort of, what, again, like I said, what the real world data pans out with this information and what the side effects are, especially we've heard a little anecdotes here and there, but, you know, what is the real incidence of chronic nausea and vomiting, things like that, and, yeah. and decreased gastric motility. And I did hear some anecdotes about, you know, some severe mental health complications um, on these medications as well uh, at the higher doses for weight loss as compared to diabetes. Time will tell. Stay tuned. Yeah, really, very much so. Cool. Then we next we have the number two choice was actually a, a single trial that came out, but it's a it's a type of cancer that has really had a very bleak prognosis for a long time, and that's ovarian cancer. And a couple of high profile trials came out this year, but I think the one that struck me was personally was the phase one Mirasol trial, which which I actually saw the presentation, and it was like one of those presentations that gives you like your skin goes all you know goosebumpy and everything from the excitement in the room and everyone that. There was like a standing ovation in the room and it was very exciting. Wow. So, but this actually showed that there was a, an increased median progression free survival that was, you know, significant, but not striking. What was striking was the overall survival benefit was, was quite considerate. And we haven't seen that in ovarian cancer for decades. So it's really good news for patients with that. It's a, an antibody drug conjugate that seems to be doing the trick. This is a whole new class of, of treatments. Um, it comes with its pluses and its minuses. They're expensive, but they, if they're effective, hey, you are really bringing life back to someone who who otherwise had no other options. So very exciting trial. And yeah, we're going to put some of this data on the actual website too. So if people want to see the references to the trials, that, that will be available on, on the Physicians Weekly website. So thank you very much. You know, ovarian cancer is one of those things that's very hard to detect. And then when we do detect, yeah. it's very hard to treat. And so I think this will certainly be, be a game changer moving forwards. And fortunately, it's relatively rare, but at the same time, you know, very hard to treat if we do find it. Yeah, it's usually found too late, right? Because it's asymptomatic right. typically. Exactly. So Artificial intelligence. I'll let you start off on this one, Alex. This is a buzzword we're all talking about. How has this changed medicine this year, do you think? Uh, you know, artificial intelligence, I think, has really hit an inflection point. One of my colleagues ex- likes to refer to this as augmented intelligence, That's because good. really it's it's not going to replace the physician. I don't think it will ever replace the physician, particularly for more of those social interactions and connection and building, but it will help us do our job better. It'll prop reminders saying, hey, this patient has these several different factors. You should consider this medication or the, has these factors. You should consider second medication. And so I think it will help us do our job better 
because there is just so much information out there that one physician cannot possibly know everything, even within their field of specialty, I think sometimes. So I think artificial intelligence, augmented intelligence will continue to grow and expand. I think it's really important in putting my health policy hat on here for a second, that we make sure that physicians and clinicians are really at the table as we develop some of the policies and guidelines so that we can make sure there's guardrails, there's barriers to make sure this is done safely, as opposed to having someone else implement it for us, because it's coming whether we like it or not. So we really need to make sure we get on board and are on the ground floor to make sure it's done in an appropriate way that's going to serve both physicians and patients, quite frankly. That's really true. So also from the patient point of view, what I hear a lot of is patients really struggle to understand their electronic dossiers. And what we've used in Europe, we're using AI a little bit, or at least these large language models to help rewrite things like a pathology report and bring it to a health literacy level that's appropriate for patients. It's actually quite interesting because it's something that we wouldn't have the time to do or be able to do. And it's doing a, a strikingly good job in helping our patients, you know, really become engaged in their own healthcare choices and shared decision-making, it certainly starts with understanding things like what kind of disease do I have? So uh, really important. Yeah. Yeah. Especially here in California, we have new laws. I, I don't know if this, it's statewide or other, other areas as well, but open medical records. And so patients have access yeah. to all their labs and all their reports, like right. right at the point of care, they can't interpret it. And I get lots and lots of emails being like, Hey, I got a CT scan. What does this mean? Right. That will save a lot of bandwidth and time for, I think the physicians as well, if we can have right. AI do some of this, I don't want to call it busy work, but some of this work to help patients better understand. It's translation, and I think it's an essential part of our communication package. Obviously, when you're in a busy multidisciplinary team discussion over a certain patient, you're going to be using your acronyms, you're going to be using the medical jargon, but that's not going to help your patient understand their disease or their choices. So I think that's really a a fantastic approach of, of integrating this to everyone's benefit. Yep, I agree. Okay, anything else for AI? Because it's huge, and it's just going to be part of our life from here on out. It should have it be a standing uh, top 10 every year. We can talk about how it's changed this year because I'm sure it's going to continue to grow and expand more than we could possibly imagine. Well, that's a, that's a great point is you and I did this last year too. And AI was yeah. not on our lists um, at all. We didn't see it coming. <laughs> there we go. Maybe we should get some better uh, better producers for our podcast here. No. Maybe we need to get some good crystal balls. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, mental health. What is new in mental health? I mean, there's a lot going on. And how do you think we've made that? Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, I think there was this shift in just the awareness and the stigmatization of mental health. It's a hard word to say. And I I think the COVID-19 pandemic suddenly like just lit a fire under many things in the society. I think this is one of those pieces where just the awareness of the number of people struggling with mental health and people's willingness to actually seek help. A recent report I saw recently said that there's only about 21% of all Americans experience some severe mental health illness within their their lifetime. And there's only about one mental health professional for every 350 patients. Um, and this is not something that you can just take a pill and be done with it. This is pretty intensive work uh, yeah. to address mental health. So I think the good news is that people are more willing to talk about their mental health and seek treatment. The bad news is we just don't have enough access to mental health professionals. I see this every day in my office. I always like to say that about 80% of patients who walk in my door, there's some degree of mental health component to what's going on, be it chronic pain, or that's probably the biggest one, or just anxiety about potential illness. And those are things we have to navigate as particularly in family medicine and primary care. But can we provide patients 
tools to help self-treat early so that they don't get to that point where they need intensive inpatient care or or kind of ongoing counseling. And there's there's lots of, you know, speaking of AI before, um, there's lots of sort of apps and self-help tools right. that are emerging more and more every day. And so I, I think mental health is one of these things that will continue to grow and expand. And we need to be ready for the wave as a healthcare uh, professionals. Yeah. And, you know, I think also the clinical science is lagging a bit with, mm-hmm. with mental health. And I, I'm just pleased to see that there were some trials that came out this year, you know, yeah. good standard, uh, well-controlled, you know, randomized phase three trials where they're actually asking what are the interventions that work on patients. And that's really going to produce the evidence base that we all need to actually go forward on this. And, and I think that I hope that there's more money and more interest to approach this in, in a way that is solid. Right. I think you hit the nail on the head there. And, and unfortunately, you know, mental health is not a cash cow, unfortunately, for no. a lot of these these uh, pharmaceutical companies and in other industries. And so as a result, there's not a lot of investment. And so many of the tools we have are, you know, decades old. Um, they work, but they just work slowly. And can we find new tools which can help work even better or faster? And, and Right. I, there's sort of virtual reality trials going on, for example, mm-hmm. that will help people with trauma. There's, you know, transcranial magnetic stimulation that seems to be yep. uh, pretty robust. But, you know, these are not indeed cash cows from a pharmaceutical company. And exactly. that's something to really consider. How, how are we going to approach this so that we make sure that there's that these important health issues also get good funding? And uh, that involves policy and, and, and lobbying. I think that's more your, your cup of tea than mine. Hmm. Next on our list is actually just sort of a curious side road here is has just kind of noted, I think, in some of the larger diabetes trials that people that had a comorbidity of Parkinson's really seem to benefit on these trials. And then now this has kind of branched off into some of the new trials that are just focusing on Parkinson's disease. And uh, they're looking again at GLP-1 receptor agonists, just like we were talking Mm -hmm. about before for weight loss. And it seems to be helping people, or at least slowing the progression of Parkinson's, that who are symptomatic. It doesn't seem to slow down the onset of Parkinson's, but it does seem to slow down the progression. And so there's a, a couple of, of good trials that came out this year. Some of them are not yet you know, going to be quite clinically relevant. I don't think you'll be giving your Parkinson's patients in your clinic that next in the next month or two. But you know, I think it will be really very part of a reality. And this was the year that that made that reality happen. So really yeah. interesting. The next one on our list is catheter-directed therapies in acute pulmonary embolism. And, and, and the reason why we chose this was a little bit to, for the variety's sake is, you know, emergency medicine is a specialty in and of its own that neither of us Absolutely. practice much. However, we know that pulmonary embolism is on the rise. And certainly with COVID, there was a lot more pulmonary embolisms around in general. Just Absolutely. So there's been a, a big number of breakthroughs and there, it's been kind of incremental, nothing like huge and majorly practice changing. But I think what I saw in 2023 is that Catheter-directed therapies in general have really made the stage, and now we're talking about them in our multidisciplinary team discussions. We're talking about them pretty much any time a patient is hospitalized to evaluate their personal situation and how what are their risks. It's a very interesting idea, and I think this has in particular come up for the intermediate risk patient, which there really wasn't a lot for. You didn't really want to prescribe them antiplatelet therapy, but you didn't really know what to do. Um, so this, right. is, this offers some options. So I, I don't know. I personally thought that this is a very interesting breakthrough in 2023. 
always, if we can sort of do a really targeted surgical approach, if you will, exactly. uh, to, to a, a venous a thrombus or any kind of thromboembolism, you know, versus systemic, you know, I use the same idea with my patients in sports medicine. If I can do a sure. steroid injection interarticular versus doing oral prednisone, you're going to have a lot fewer systemic side effects and, and we can kind of get our, maximize our bang for our buck. And so I think this, I think this really makes a lot of sense here. And I yeah. think it's, it's good to see this kind of progressing and that we can have, we can have more tools at our disposal. I, well, you know, the, the old adage, uh, act local, think global, right? In this case, it's right. act local and think systemic. Just in the, <laughs> as a backup, right? You got to think of the whole, the whole systemic situation, but good. So this one, value-based care. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. We know it's, it's an important delivery model. We know yeah. that there's been a lot of discussion about that this year. Could you, could mm-hmm. you give us a little bit more insight into that, please? Yeah, I I really feel like, you know, we've been hearing this term value-based care within the health policy world for years and years. And I think it's really, it's kind of reached a tipping point in the last couple of years here. And I think last year, especially. And so there's trade-offs really, you know, the idea of value-based care is that, you know, uh, we look at what the outcomes are, right? And we, we don't just sort of invest and invest and invest regardless of the outcomes. And it really takes, I think, much more patient-centered approach and that, you know, physicians and healthcare systems are are reimbursed based on the, the, the outcome and the value they provide versus just the services they provide. We know there are a lot of low value care out there, which can be very expensive, but when it comes to clinical improvement, it really doesn't make that much bang for the buck. So really the goal here is to, you know, especially in the US, our unsustainable astronomical expenditure in in healthcare and and, uh, it's on a non-sustainable trajectory (laughs) as well. And so this is to really try to bend that curve to have, you know, healthcare be more affordable for our patients, to be more effective, to be more efficient, to have better patient satisfaction, to really have some payers have some skin in the game when it comes to providing these tools. And I always, you know, in the in the 90s, we had sort of this medical technology cold war, you know, one hospital would get a new CT scanner. So then the next hospital got a new CT, CT scanner. And it was a, kind of this game of, of one-upsmanship. And I think it really kind of shifts the finances in the the math a little bit to say, okay, what is really best for our patients in terms of their clinical outcomes versus sort of what's best for our bottom line. And there are some growing pains. You know, CMS had the physician fee schedule adjustment for last year, which has a a negative, I think, 1.25% adjustment, which nobody is is a fan of. However, they did invest more in things like primary care and mental health and some of these upstream impacts, which we really know can have a long improvement in downstream. So rather than investing in this tertiary care, you know, investing in in, in primary prevention, essentially, is, is is really the goal here, I think. And that's, you know, there's some growing pains associated with that. And, and it puts people in, at a bit at odds, which is unfortunate, especially given some some antiquated rules around the pie only being so big for for physicians and healthcare companies, which I think yeah. is that a hard reality. That's, but That's another issue. <laughs> Well, I agree, but I think it's it's really important, and, and we as health technology assessments a lot to determine mm-hmm. how you can work with value based care, and we really have to involve the patients in these in these decisions. And I think Absolutely. one of the obstacles, or it's not an obstacle, it's also an opportunity, is the actual you know getting our patients on board and getting them engaged in helping us define what value means to them is mm-hmm. such an important. I hope it'll kind of bring everyone together and and perhaps close that that gap a little bit between who is the practitioner and who's being practiced. Just upon <laughs> so. right. I, I I always like to I always like to say in primary.
primary care, the magic, and this is why we won't be replaced by robots and AI, right, is taking what the patient thinks they need versus what the patient actually medically needs and bridging that gap. And that right. takes that takes time and that takes relationships and next conversation. You know, a lot of times patients think more care is better care, but we know from a medical point of view that is likely mm-hmm. not the case and antithetical many times, especially when it comes to, to primary prevention, because then, you know, we find incidentalomas and all kinds of other issues. I could I could tell you a million stories about patients who went to the hospital for something that they thought was routine and they ended up having you know, catastrophic outcomes. And we want to avoid that as much as possible. Absolutely. For sure. For sure. Okay. Health information data exchange. I'm going to put you on the line here again. This is something you know much more about than I do. So. Yeah. So this is something here in California starting next year, actually, well, January, 2024, there is a law that's going to affect regarding health information data exchange, which basically means that particularly we're focusing mostly on our more vulnerable Medicaid population. Patients you know, if they go to one doctor, if they go to one urgent care, they go to one hospital, that's fine. All their information is there contained within that system. But when there's multiple different organizations, multiple different systems and doctor's offices and hospitals that patient touches, how can we make sure that information follows the patient um, and doing so in a, in a HIPAA compliant way? And that's really the goal here behind the data exchange, because we know a lot of times Speaking of of medical waste, right? If if they had a CT scan last week at the ER and they go to another ER, that's going to help inform them rather than doing another CT scan and exposing the patient to more radiation and excessive costs. And so that's part of the impetus behind this. But really, it's really good patient-centered care. And so there's been tons of work here within California regarding data exchanges. How can we share data in a way that's safe, that's HIPAA compliant? And as we know, you know, big data can be very valuable for some organizations as well. And there's a little hesitancy on some parts to kind of share that information. Right. Uh, I mean, traditionally, it's been sort of the currency of, of publications, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, that that is the idea here. I think this is all very early in the implementation stage. And so this may be something that we have should revisit in the future as well and how this changes. And uh, a lot of the health policy folks in here, California, California are very, you know, they're very self-centered and they like to say how as California health policy goes, so goes the nation. And I think there's some truth to that just based on our size and the number of patients we have here in California. Sure. Um, but but this is, for me, I think this is one of the reasons that I, I love practicing in my organization because it is a closed loop system and I don't have to worry about ordering extra tests and not knowing what patients, the medications the patient is on. And the goal here behind this data exchange is to really close those gaps and improve patient care. Surely this is doable. I mean, it's just, yes. it's just a matter of collaboration and, 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 you know, unnatural human activities. Right. You mean you want my EHR to talk to your EHR? We can't exactly. do that. Like, we don't have time for that. More resources. Yeah. No, I get that. So, and number nine is about the Alzheimer's drugs. I, I put this on the list just because, and you agreed to it. It was, it was talked about a lot this year. Um, yeah. I put it on hesitantly because is it a big breakthrough? What do you think, Alex? Well, I think from especially where I sit and clinically, this is probably uh, going to impact a very, very small portion of patients that but for those that it, that are that would potentially benefit from this medication, I think this could be a game changer. But I think it's a very, very small subset of patients. So time will tell. Can we bring this one back next year too? And we can. Also? I'm afraid it's going to be hard to avoid if they come out with new data. But lecanemab, you're right, it's a very small set. But I would say that sometimes the rare diseases gives, give us insights into how how to approach things. And, and so even if it's a, a small subset, I think it might give us some really valuable information about general neurodegeneration and and in general how the, the brain is going through these, these pathological responses. And right. so um, I'm hoping it'll actually kick off a, a new line of interesting 
interesting research as well for that will affect that. The disease I specifically work with, it's von Hippel-Lindau disease. It's a tiny little disease. One in 36,000 people have it. Incredibly rare, but it won the Nobel Prize in 2019 because it opened up the whole understanding of how oxygen is is being processed in cells. So, yep. you know, you just don't know with these things. So it's, no, it's really very important. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think especially for something like Alzheimer's, where there are not great treatments, um, yeah. you know, these, these small incremental changes can make a big make a big difference for multiple patients, right. both now and, and as it expands uh, amongst greater research as it continues down the road. But we talked about this last year. I think we mentioned lecanemab as being something to look forward to in 2024 mm-hmm. in, or 2023. And we put it on the list today. Patients have been treating with it. It does seem to have a very, what is it, modest effect of 27% slowing of cognitive uh, decline. But hey, 27%, that can make a difference uh, in your quality of life. And, and that's yep. that's perhaps worth the price. But again, value-based, <laughs> we're going to have to use value-based yep. care and going forward. And these, these are going to be tough choices for sure. Absolutely. Hey, we're on our number 10. Are you ready? Yeah. It's kind of a silly one. It's kind of a silly one to end on, but it is actually technically kind of interesting. This year, um, there was a, a paper, a nature paper, I think, that came out showing that non-invasive prenatal DNA testing can be performed mm-hmm. on the fetal DNA in, in the mother's blood. And so this is something that will reduce the, the number of miscarriages. It'll help fertility. It'll help people make choices around their reproductive options. I think it's pretty exciting in that it just does open it up, but it comes at a time where, at least in the U.S., we have some reproductive restrictions already. And so it's, it's, it's sort of a mixed blessing in this case is you'll know more about your baby, but will you be able to act on it? I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I actually found out about this from a patient. Um, ah. I had a patient who came in very early in pregnancy. I think she was maybe like, eight or 10 weeks into gestation. And she told me that they knew what the the gender they're having. And I was like, how, how usually we do like a gender scan around 18 or 20 weeks. Yeah, gestation. Yeah. How do you know that already? And they're like, oh, we had a blood test done. And it was, I was like, oh, this is fascinating. And so the, the amount of wow. information get from, from fetal DNA, uh, fetal cells circulating with, within the maternal bloodstream, you know, I, I think this could give a huge, huge amount of information to mothers and parents, particularly, you know, if there's some genetic disorders that run yes. in the family that they could be concerned about. And again, to your point, you know, great, we have this information, what can we do about it? That's a whole nother conversation. But I think, you know. Well, you demonstrated exactly why we all need to know about it and talk about it, because you're going to exactly. have patients walk into your clinic that are going to know things about their baby or their cystic fibrosis carrier and they don't, and their mm-hmm. partner doesn't want to get tested. Exactly. Something like that, that they're they're going to want to, you know, maybe test their children to see if that if that's an issue. You know, I think that it's important to have these options for patients. I think it just opens up the window of possibilities. It's inexpensive. Therefore, it should be widely available to people. And um, I think that that's, that's a really exciting thing that, and it's fine with me as long as, you know, we're, we're not, uh, who knows, maybe it'll replace the 18 to 20 week ultrasound at some point. Maybe yeah. we're going to be doing just testing all the mothers for their DNA and doing population-based screening. Who knows? Yeah. I've definitely had some, some babies who didn't cooperate during that 18 week ultrasound and they had to come <laughs> back because we couldn't see certain parts of the anatomy, right? When they weren't laying a certain direction, right? So let's, let's be honest. Doing a, a DNA test is obviously much, much more accurate and, and, and probably 
easier and faster too. Right. And it removes the risk associated with amniocentesis and also yeah. those lab costs of culturing the cells. So exactly. Which, uh, so that I think all in all, I think it's a good breakthrough to, to end with. And it's, it's helpful. It's a new generation, right? It's about babies. Mm-hmm. So there we go. <laughs> so that's, that's it for our top 10. Um, it'll be on our website. I really thank you, uh, Alex, for thinking these through with me and talking about them. Nice holidays ahead of you. Yes, absolutely. We're going to, we're going to enjoy time with family and I'm going to take my kids skiing again. Oh, uh, you know, growing up here in Southern California, snow is, a, is not uh, common. So trying to expose them a little bit to the, to the white fluffy snow will be good for them. I have some snow less than uh, three feet away from me right now outside this window in front of me. <laughs> so well, <I'm> a, <laughs> not everyone's in Southern California. Anyway. <laughs> So, well, thank you so much, and I wish you happy holidays, and we're going to come back for the next episode. We're going to talk about what to look forward to in 2024. Wonderful. Thanks, all, and thanks for your time. Thank you. That's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you listen in next week, too. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Thanks for listening to Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly offers in-depth interviews with the most highly respected experts in the medical community. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. Weekly.